Turn with me, if you would, in your copies of God's Word to the book of Psalms, to Psalm 45. Psalm 45, and we'll commence our reading there at verse 10. Psalm 45, and here at the 10th verse. And beloved, I remind you only once again that this is the holy word of God, perfect in all of its parts, true in every sense, and so a sure place to stand, something which we may rest on without condition. And so give now your ear to the word of our God. Hearken, O daughter, and consider, and incline thine ear. Forget also thine own people and thy father's house, so shall the king greatly desire thy beauty. For he is thy Lord, and worship thou him. And the daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift. Even the rich among the people shall entreat thy favor. And our text is just that last verse, verse 12. And the daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift. Even the rich among the people shall entreat thy favor. Beloved, if you remember last time we were together, we took verses 10 and 11 and we saw there that, of course, the focus has shifted. The immediate focus has moved from Christ, the king upon the throne who wields the scepter, to now the one who stands beside him, the queen of verse 9 who stands in the gold of Ophir. And the psalmist directs what he says now in the 10th verse and the verses following To the queen. Now, there is a change then in the immediate focus for the psalmist. But I want you to remember, beloved, as we look at the psalm as a whole, and we remember what we said when we came to the very first verse, even if his immediate focus has shifted, we we need to recognize that his principal theme is still unchanged. Even though, in other words, that he's, he's referring now to the bride, He is still speaking, as he says in verse 1, of those things touching the king. He is looking to Christ still, but but he's treating the glory of Christ, thinking about the majesty of the Redeemer, but now through the church. And as we look at this moment, as we look at particularly the 12th verse, you'll notice that the glory of the church that he sees here as he still is seeking to set before us the glory of Christ, he now falls to describe not her duty only. Remember, that was our focus last Lord's Day evening. He now describes her benefits, the blessing she receives. And and the way the psalmist does this is he moves, really, from from the, the particular to the general. The text reads in the very first line that the daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift. You remember throughout the scriptures that that idiom occurs all throughout. Sometimes we're, we're acquainted with the daughter of Zion. Other times we're taught, we, we read about the daughter of Babylon. And in this case, of course, the daughter of Tyre. And the idea behind that idiom is just this, that, that the whole populace of a city or a kingdom is in view. In other words, 
The people that are in view here are not just the ruling class. When you come across this phrase, the daughter of a particular people or city, the idea is is that everyone, from the lowest to the highest, everyone is engaged in the same act. And what do we find? Well, we find the daughter of Tyre comes with a gift. The sense is this is done heartily and by all those of Tyre. But but the question obviously is, what is Tyre's significance. Geographically, as we think about the land of promise, Tyre actually lies well without it. Tyre is not part of the land promised to the children of Israel. It was a city-state. In fact, before Alexander took it, it was a city-state that was also an island in the far northwesternmost part of Palestine. Uh, Tyre was an island, uh, and it was a Gentile island at that. But it was an island that was close enough, close enough to the children of Israel, and close enough particularly to the land allotted to the tribe of Asher, that it was well known to Israel and had a particular function. It was an island that was very strategic and had incredible significance for the economy of God's people under age. I want you to think about the geography just for a moment. If you're looking at Israel... If you're looking at the, if you're looking at ancient Israel rather, you'll notice that in the north and in the southern borders of the land that was promised, there were particular kingdoms. And so, if any kingdom came through, would want to access Israel, they had to come through these particular kingdoms, these other particular people. And on top of that, if you were trying to come from the east, well, you simply just couldn't do it. The east, to the east of Israel, is an expansive desert that no army ever successfully crossed, and nobody really could. It is miles and miles of desolate wilderness. And on top of that, if you're coming in from the coast, the land that was given to the children of Israel lacked almost any port place. The water is too shallow, too shallow and for too many miles for any ship really to be, to be able to dock. And so that's why we don't read in the scriptures of, of amphibious assaults on the children of Israel. Israel was largely inaccessible, except for one place. As you're looking on the map and you go to the far northwesternmost part of the territory, you'll find that there was a harbor, a harbor that belonged to Asher, and a harbor that was largely controlled by Tyre, the city-state that's in view in our text this evening. It was, a te- it was a place that allowed all kinds of nations to trade with Israel, and all kinds of trade Israel could then do with other nations. It was through Tyre. It had political significance because of that. It was the principal place where communications would come through from other nations. And so when the prophet Isaiah speaks of Tyre, he calls it the crowning city. It was incredibly significant. But I want you to notice, beloved, it was significant because it was Israel's connection, strikingly, to other nations. It was the way that the other nations would access her and that she would access them. This is a wealthy and a politically powerful people. And strikingly in our text, this wealthy 
this powerful people from the lowest in the economy to the greatest in power, they all now come bearing gifts for the bride. Now that's the particular. What is the general? Well, the general is that the rich among the people, the people generally, shall entreat thy favor. That is the wealthy of the nations. And the word there is alm. The sense is the people generally speaking. Uh, This is translated elsewhere as even Gentiles. They will come entreating the favor of the bride. And literally that phrase in the Hebrew is simply this. It is appeasing thy face. The sense is, that these ones are coming to, to the bride, coming to the church to court her friendship. Now, we see particularly what that looks like for the children of Tyre. But the sense is, that the, as these two lines stand in parallel, the sense is the nations generally are doing the same thing. They're now looking to appease, as it were, to, to make friendship with the church. Now, what do we make of this? Well, first of all, it's important for us to recognize that this is a text that is a promise. This is a promise. This is assured. The Lord God has told us time and again that one day the nations will, in fact, do what we find the nations doing in this text. The church will be beautified, and in being beautified, she will also be entreated of the nations. But I want you to remember how this text falls, especially in light of what we said last Lord's Day evening. This text is a promise, but it also, beloved, is inextricably attached to the command. The command of verse 10. The promise of verse 12 is an incentive to fulfill the command, forget your father's house and all of your people. As she does this, as the church is beautified, this is her experience. She is beautified, clinging to the king, renouncing the world and her previous identity, and in being beautified, this is what she's promised. But as we look at this text, and we remember what we said in verse 1, that even now we should still have an, have an eye to Christ, even while we're looking at the church. The sense of this text is very simple. If we take the allegory as it is, and we see these nations coming and bringing gifts to this queen, well, beloved, where are the gifts going? They're entering in the king's court. Yes, they're being given to the queen, but the sense is they ultimately belong to the king. They come into his court. And so this is a text that shows us, first, that there is a promise that the church of Christ will in fact be beautified and will one day be entreated even as we have in this text. We also have here the idea that this is an incentive, a further incentive for clinging to Christ all the more and renouncing the world. But ultimately, beloved, this is a text that reminds us that Christ will take up the church and will use the church to bring the nations to himself. Because ultimately, all of the gifts and all that we see in this text are really speaking of the king's glory, even if through the church. And so, beloved, what we have in this text, the theme principally being 
that the church's beauty will be used to draw the nations to Christ. The church's beauty will be used to draw the nations to Christ. And I want us to consider that briefly this evening under two headings. I want us to see this as it is something that is ensured, that's as promised, and something that's given to the church as an enticement. So take, first of all, this as it is promised, as it's ensured. The daughter of Tyre, says the text, shall be there with a gift. Rich among the people shall entreat thy favor. The sense is really a, a twofold promise. The church will be beautified as was described in verses 10 and 11. She will be beautified, and as she is beautified, the nations will come to her. That's the sense. And beloved, this is promised right throughout Scripture. It's promised that the church herself will be revived and that the nations will be brought to Christ. Take those promises that relate to the church. I'll read to you just two, but we could go on for many. Here he says to the church, O thou afflicted, tossed with tempest, and not comforted, behold, I will lay thy stones with fair colors, and lay thy foundations with sapphires, and I will make thy windows of agates. All thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. In righteousness shalt thou be established. This is the promise that belongs to the church. And beloved, make note, the promise is that she will be beautified as we have it in this text. She will become more and more like her head. Another prophecy in Isaiah 62 reads thus. He says, Thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of thy God. Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken, neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate. But thou shalt be called Hephizpah, and thy land Beulah. For the Lord delighteth in thee. Beloved, the sense is, that at the end of the age, as, as we move toward the millennium, we should expect, and really in the millennium, its, its fullness, the church revived. Here we have a promise that that church that was not comforted, that church that the, themselves were made nomads time and again, who suffered all kinds of defection, will one day be revived. We see partial fulfillment of this in Pentecost, but it's only partial. The promise is for a future and great revival in the church. One of our forebears put it this way. When we think of those times before the end, we should understand that there will be saving conversion on a scale hitherto unparalleled. Ecclesiastical, that is, church unity and peace Spiritual prosperity, shining ordinances, bright tokens of the Lord's presence with his people, as well as in their secular as sacred occupations. Beloved, this is what belongs to the church. And so she shall be beautified. That's promised. But, but our text, you remember, is really directing our attention to the gifts that are given to her as she's beautified. And given to her by Gentiles. And so what do the scriptures say of this? Isaiah 66. I will extend peace to her that is to Zion like a river. And the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then shall ye suck 
Ye shall be born upon her sides, and be dandled upon her knees. Beloved, the senses of the Gentiles will come. And, and what's striking is the Gentiles will come like a flowing stream. What does that mean? I want you to remember what we sing when we sing Psalm 87. Of Zion it shall be said, This and that man was born in her, and the highest himself shall establish her. The Lord shall count when he writeth up the people that this man was born there. Beloved, the sense in the text is very basic, isn't it? That Zion will have all of the nations coming to her. And we're not speaking here about physical Zion. We're not talking here about a point, geographical point. We're speaking here of the church. And the church saying that all of these Gentiles, all of these ones who are strangers, aliens to the covenant, as the apostle puts it in Ephesians, will be able to be said they were born in Zion. That is, born again to God. That's promise. And beloved, we could spend really evening upon evening thinking through these promises. I I would direct your attention to, to Isaiah 2. Where there you have the Gentiles speaking to Jacob. Saying, come and let us go to Zion. Let us hear from the Lord that law which we should obey. Beloved, we could go on and on, but the promises are precisely what we have in this text. Just as Tyre represented Israel's connection with the world, really. As it represented the Gentiles' access to Israel and vice versa. So, beloved, the promise is that the nations will indeed come to a point where through the church, and really becoming part of the church, they come to Christ. That is assured. A Christian, that means then, that as we think about the church, and even her state today, we should remember that glorious things are indeed spoken on her. We see a world that lashes out out of the church at every point. Seems at this stage, seems at this stage, to be almost irredeemable, but it's only seemingly so. Beloved, our God has promised, and our God will indeed fulfill. But the second point that I want us to focus on this evening, as we close, is the enticement. The aspect of this text uh, that belongs, really, with all that has been said from verse 10 and beyond. This is an enticement for the church. To indeed forget also thine own people and thy father's house. The sense is, is that, beloved, the scriptures are clear. Here is the order. If the nations are going to come to Christ, the church itself must be revived, must be beautified, must forget her father's house and her people all. But it's also, beloved, strikingly, this is, this beautification that the church experiences here is also described for us as an enticement for the world to come to Christ. Something about Christ's likeness, this beauty that the church has, indeed exhibits the glory of Christ's grace. And that is to entice the church to greater holiness as much as it is, as we'll find in just a moment's time, the very instrument Christ will use to bring the world to himself. Beloved, in the millennial glory, the world will be drawn to the church to see Christ's glory. Make no mistake, 
The text is very clear. Isaiah 66, it shall come that I will gather all nations and tongues. And he's saying there to Zion, I will gather all nations and tongues and they shall come. That is, they shall come to Zion. But note this, and see my glory. When the nations come to the church, as we have promised here, whose glory are they really beholding? The promise is they will behold the glory of Christ. As the church is beautified, as she fulfills her mandate that's found in in verse 10 of Psalm 45, the glory that she sees is the glory of the King. And beloved, that means then that the Gentiles that are described here are brought to the church, but they're brought to church so that they may see Christ and to behold His glory. And Christian, there is... There is no glory that the church possesses. No glory that the church has, except in her likeness to her head. That's what's given to us in this text. That as the daughter of Tyre and as the people see the queen's likeness to the king, her attachment to the king, they are themselves brought to see the beauty of it all. But the beauty which they behold is that of the king. Christian, there are so many ways we can state this. Take what you have in Matthew 5. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. What value does the believer have if they are not being conformed into the image of Christ? Here Christ says very pointedly, they are to be but cast out and trodden underfoot of men. Beloved, there is no believer but those who are being sanctified and who are being made like their head. Because if they weren't, this text speaks of them. To be thrown out. There is no value, Christian, in those who profess faith but are not being conformed into his likeness. And what's true of individual believers is true of the church generally. Or take another text. When he speaks to the church in Laodicea, he says, Because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Here Christ says, very pointedly, the calling is to be warm. The calling is to be zealous. The calling is to pursue in earnest this likeness to Christ. Now, Christian, you might ask a question. That seems a bit contradictory, doesn't it? That, that as the world sees me made more like Christ, that the world will be enticed. Uh, Isn't it that we find quite the opposite? That in fact, the more Christ-like his people are made, the more, the more the world hates them. In fact, that's even promised, is it not? And and the answer to all those questions is yes. So how do we make sense of a text like this? Whereas the church possesses more Christ-likeness, the nations come to her. Beloved, we need to recognize that those who are coming to give gifts, are those who are graciously drawn. But there's a very simple way to look at this. Christian, your beauty and the church's beauty, as they are brought to Christ, it's merely an instrument in the Redeemer's hand. As he is drawing souls to himself, this is merely an instrument to set Christ before them. 
It's the grace of Christ that causes men to lay down their arms and to succumb and, and, and really to, to lay under the scepter of Christ. But we're told in this text that it's the beauty of the church that will be a powerful instrument to do that. Beloved, we close with this. Here is an enticement to holiness. You see, as you look throughout the history of the church, you'll notice that those first several centuries were marked by incredible persecution. And, and really, as, as really lit by, lit, fires lit by Nero and all the way through Diocletian, the church was under incredible, incredible duress. But what's striking about those first three centuries is the godliness that emerged. It was notable in Rome that there was a people who even the fires of Rome could not ultimately consume. The the dross of the church was quite literally purged. And what emerged from those centuries was a godliness that was conspicuous, a clear godliness in the church. And then what do you find when the grace of God moves generally through Rome? Well, what happens? The church, strikingly, is taken care of. The nations see this people purged, beautified, and by the grace of God are brought to seek her good, to secure as much as they can her well-being. But that's the order, Christian. The order is not to become like the world. The order is not to take on the world's tactics. The order is to pursue Christ's likeness at all costs. And beloved, what is promised even in the millennial reign of Christ is that that too will be the order. The church will be revived, and as she is revived, then the nations will come. Beloved, we can't forget that. Christian, on an individual level, this text speaks so much. Do you long to see your neighbors? your co-workers, your friends, and your family members brought to Christ. Your calling is to pursue great Christ-likeness. The world will say it's an outdated practice. That those things will not be used to allure sinners. But beloved, if that sinner is being brought by God's grace, the text of Scripture really from the beginning to the end is that they will be brought also to see the beauty of holiness. Christ in his people. And so, beloved, if you long to see the nations come, if it's your cry, if it's your cry to the nations, oh, praise the Lord, all ye nations, praise him, all ye people. Beloved, your first call is to fulfill what you have in Psalm 45.10. Forget your father's house. Your people all cling to this king. Beloved, that is the call from this text. And Christians strive. Strive for this greater likeness with the blessed promise that the church generally and each individual member particularly, even in this text, is promised that they too will be beautified. If they are truly in Christ, they will be made more like Christ. And so, Christian, cling to these things.
strive, strive for greater holiness, and all that the Redeemer, that our triune God, may be praised throughout the nations. Amen.